This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there. So good to be catching up with you this afternoon, this Monday afternoon. Uh, this hour, you are going to get an update on that fire that burnt a storage shed at Quinana on Friday afternoon. It was owned or is owned by Nutrien Ag Solutions. And you'll find out how much of an impact it's going to have on fertiliser supplies for seeding. We'll get into that after the news headlines at half past 12 today. Also, just before those news headlines, China is back in its number one position as the top export market for Australian barley. And it's taking 90% of Australia's barley in December. We'll look at that shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC WA, streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app. Well, the remaining 16,000 sheep and cattle on board the MV Bahesia will begin to be offloaded this afternoon. Last week, the regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, rejected an application to re-export the livestock to Israel. The department released a timeline and its statement of reasons for knocking back that application late on Friday. And it shows animal rights groups filed for an injunction in Israel that could have prevented an import permit from being issued for the MB Bahesia. And the regulator decided there was a high risk the ship could reach Israel only to be stuck outside the port. Jeff Pearson is president of the WA Farmers Livestock Section. Jeff, what's the latest with these livestock coming off the vessel? So as we uh, in a position um, and found out last, late last week that the animals were to be offloaded. So as it stands now, we're able to get a berth as early as this afternoon to start uh, unloading the livestock. And how long does that take, that process? Uh, we'll probably look at start shifting sheep uh, over today and tomorrow and possibly into Wednesday and then probably onto the cattle on Wednesday, I'd say, at this stage. So it'll be a, probably around a three-day process. Okay. Why does it take that amount of time? Uh, 15,000 sheep and 1,500 cattle, is, um, uh, it, takes, it takes time because uh, of the sheer number, but also uh, the availability of, of, of transport trucks as well because we have to go under a strict quarantine uh, procedure with the transport uh, and also making sure that the, the, the trucks that are available uh, are fit for purpose. And are you expecting some of the livestock to die in this process, Jeff? Because, you know, that's the, you know, when, when they're being offloaded, as you discovered with the cattle coming off, um, was it last week? I'm getting confused with the weeks now, but some of those cattle, four head, died yeah, uh, with so that, that process. Was- yeah, correct. So last Friday we unloaded uh, and we had a couple of mortalities uh, through the transport process. But uh, look, that was unforeseen and an unusual circumstance. It wasn't disease related or anything. It was just logistical. Uh, and look, we, we, we may get one or two on this in this process as well. But look, under the, under the numbers that we, we're shifting, it's going to be, uh, it should run reasonably smooth. And where do the sheep and the cattle go? So the, both uh, consignments of livestock will return back to their registered establishment, the quarantine uh, areas that they come from. So basically the department have ticked off on and approved the uh, registered establishment uh, quarantine process. So uh, they'll return there as soon as we can. And they're just isolated from any other livestock? Yeah, so basically they go under a strict biosecurity protocol where they have no uh, 
physical or nose-to-nose um, interaction with any other livestock. So uh, there will be other livestock in the surrounding areas, but not not within you know some some you know. 20, 30 metre radius. And what condition are the, the sheep and the cattle in? Have, are you aware of that? Uh, yeah, look, we've uh, obviously got to go through the, you know, the, the reissuing of a permit to protocol them back on. So under that protocol program, we have to weigh the livestock. So my um, guess is the fact that these animals have been on feed um, you know, for 30 odd days. You know, the, the cattle can do up to two kilos a day, uh, the sheep up, uh, up to a half a kilo a day. So you know, we're going to see some some pretty serious uh, weight gains with these animals and it, and it might uh, not able us to be able to re-export some of the livestock for this consignment because of the fact they've actually done too well and, and put on too much condition. And do the sheep need to be shorn again? Yeah, so obviously through the protocol, through uh, able to, to shipping sheep, you've got to have a, a certain wool length. So we've also got the issue of the sheep not only putting on too much weight but also are growing too much wool, so we're probably in a situation where we're going to have to shear some of these sheep as well. And who bears all the costs of all of these logistics, you know, right up until the point of the shearing? Uh, still back to the exporter. So the, you know, the animals are owned by the exporter, an Israeli company, so uh, they're wearing the cost all the way through. And there was some talk of trying to access some sort of compensation for all of this. Is that still what the exporter is, is looking for? That has been some preliminary discussions and, and there is reaching out to the department and the government for, for some assistance in this space. So um, that, those discussions are still still happening as we speak. All right. The plan at this stage, Jeff, is it still to re-export the, the livestock, the sheep and the cattle? As it stands, that this consignment of livestock now is, is and now going to have to be issued under a new licence or a new permit. So this voyage is finished, ended once it's disembarked. So uh, it, it'll go through the protocols of of re-export under the conditions. Right. And there's been no communication with any of the meatworks to, you know, have a plan B in place if the, uh, the re-exporting well that, doesn't take place? That that sort of discussion has been happening from time to time. There, there hasn't been any direct engagement with any of the processes because the in, intent is to is to re-export. So, um, you know, once once we get into the situation of re-export, if, you know, if we hit those stumbling blocks, well, then we'll... We'll look at locally processing, but at this stage, it's not not uh, not on the agenda. But they would be processed here in Western Australia. That's correct. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And and there will be some of them that will have to be processed that don't make it back onto the onto the vessel. So those discussions that yeah have yet to be had. And uh, has that uh, the new application to re-export is that with the regulator? That'll be with the department at the moment. So once the, the livestock are, are disin, disembarked. The exporter will go through the process of, of looking at re-exporting after the animals are rested. Right, and how long might that process take? Uh, well, the department have issued five days for resting, but I'm, I'm thinking the exporter is probably going to go a little bit longer than that. So we're probably looking at more, you know, probably five to ten days before anything can happen. Right, and they would go back on the, the exact same vessel to the same market. That's correct. Back on the same vessel, the same animals can only go on that vessel. No other animals will go on there just less than the numbers for the stocking density. The trip would be around Africa, is that right? Correct. So it'll be the long-haul voyage. So it'll be the 33 days. So, yeah, basically that's that's the, uh, the route they'll take. How, you know, anxious would you be while this journey's underway? Because the last thing you need is anything going wrong if this plan comes off and they are re-exported. Um, yeah, look, at. It's you know it's it's been a it's been a long journey to now so you know hopefully we don't hit any more hurdles along the way.
Jeff, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. Jeff Pearson, he's the president of the WA Farmers Livestock Section. 13 past 12. Well, five cattle have died from anthrax on a property north of Shepparton in Victoria's northeast. Now, anthrax is caused by a bacterium, the spores of which can remain viable in the soil for up to 50 years. It affects a range of livestock, including cattle, sheep, pigs and goats, and can also infect dogs. Uh, Anthrax has only ever occurred once in Western Australia, and that was way back in 1994, just near Walpole. Dr Cameron Bell is Victoria's Deputy Chief Veterinarian. He says early detection and reporting helped authorities control the spread of infection. Since that initial de- uh, or that notification, um, we've quarantined the property and, and undertaken a number of measures to try and um, contain the spread. Um, all the livestock on the, on the affected property have now been vaccinated and carcasses um, are in the process of being disposed of by burning and the contaminated sites where the carcasses were are being um, disinfected. So they're really key um, response activities that AgVic um, undertake and we're certainly well practised given the um, number of times we've, we've seen anthrax, particularly in recent decades. What's also important here beyond the, the boundaries of the affected property are uh, to um, undertake surveillance and Agriculture Victoria staff have been contacting livestock producers in the surrounding area, um, just checking in with them, um, raising awareness, checking if there's any unusual deaths occurring and undertaking risk assessments for their particular situations and where um, there is a, um, a, a, an assessment made and um, and, and a risk determined, then vaccination may be undertaken on, on livestock of those properties. And we do use um, vaccination in, in the face of an outbreak, but also um, as a follow-up, particularly in these higher-risk areas. Victoria's Deputy Chief Veterinarian, Dr Cameron Bell, speaking to Warwick Long and reporting the news today that five cattle have died from anthrax on a property just north of Shepparton in Victoria's northeast, and reporting too that anthrax has only ever occurred once here in Western Australia in 1994, so a long time ago. It's really like there's an anthrax sort of belt, I suppose you could call it, down that east coast of Australia, and every now and again one of these um, anthrax outbreaks occurs. But it looks like they've got it under control at this point anyway. It is quarter past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. That big bushfire northeast of Albany at Green Range is now under control. It's been burning for five days and authorities are still trying to figure out how it started. It burnt 7,500 hectares of farmland and bushland. Wellstead's power was cut off and many families had to be evacuated. Kate Jeffries' family farms at Green Range and she's thankful to all the firefighting efforts which saved their home. Oh, you know, we are eternally grateful. We know everyone is so, so busy doing with their own lives and to give up this amount of time to fight this monster fire um, for so many days, we can't thank people enough, you know, to have the houses and the sheds and everything saved. You know, we've lost 
a lot of land unfortunately and it's a hell of a mess to clean up but the people are safe the stock is safe and the infrastructure down the bottom is safe and and we just we are eternally grateful to everyone um, so we just want everyone that came, you know, from the guys on the ground to the office staff to the plane, you know, there's just so many people, you know, we think you are absolutely amazing and we're so grateful to each and every one of you. Now, no one's actually been sorted out as to how it started, but it was suspicious at the time. Yeah, well, that's the story, that it is a suspicious and that's just sickening to think that someone actually planned this devastation, you know, with intent. Kate Jeffries from Green Range speaking to Mark Bennett. Diamond Kinsella was the DFES incident controller at that Green Range fire. He says it was a great team effort getting the fire under control. Mainly thanks to, uh, to the great work done by the crews out there on the ground running a night shift and a day shift for, uh, for the last five days, a combination of obviously the local bushfire volunteers, fire and rescue service, both volunteer and career, DFA staff, DBCA, uh, the local plantations, have a lot of involvement out in that landscape, uh, City of Albany and uh, all our other uh, supporting agencies uh, all, all sort of pulled together and, um, yeah, we got on top of things. And difficult fire to fight in the sense of that landscape? Yeah, so the terrain out there uh, is, is quite steep. We sort of refer to that as, a, as mountain goat country. Backs onto the dune country down sort of towards the coast, which becomes difficult to battle as well. But crews did a, a great job keeping it away from the dunes, back up in the hills. But yeah, mix, mix of pasture, uh, forest, plantation, varying topography, which also sort of plays havoc with the wind and our weather as well. So with uh, a couple of trough movements that came through, a lot of localised interference, I guess I'll say, uh, with the weather, especially on the Thursday, made things quite challenging. And even more frustrating to learn that it was probably a suspiciously lit fire. Are you any further along the line with finding any reason or causes in that way? We're still looking at it as undetermined, um, but are investigating that. So they, that will be, uh, will be looked at uh, heavily. And, um, yeah, on the, on the disruption... You know, we've we've had crews crew numbers up to to 100 out there during the day. You times that by a day and a night shift and and five days. That's a lot of man hours that people have given up their time to uh, to come and fight those fires. And by the time you get water bombers in and all in machinery and all the rest, of it, looking at big dollars as well for an operation like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely a number number of machines, uh, dozers, loaders. Um, we had the air support, so we had fixed wind bombers. Even had our our large air tanker. I uh, did a few runs over a couple of days. Expensive activity. What's the over the next few days? Uh, the weather's really on our side. A southerly influence, which brings you know lower temps and um, increases our humidity. Favourable for, for us when fighting fires. Dear Murd Kinsella, DFES incident controller for that Green Range fire, catching up with Mark Bennett. Uh, 20 past 12 here on the country. I will check the weather conditions right around Western Australia shortly and we'll also get to those news headlines around about half past 12 today. First, though, China is back in its number one position as the top export market for Australian barley, taking 90% of Australia's barley in December. In August last year, China dropped its 80% tariffs on Australian barley, which were introduced back in 2020 
after Beijing accused Australia of selling the grain below the cost of production and subsidising farmers. Andrew Whitelaw is a market analyst with Episode3.net. Andrew, what do the figures reveal about barley flows into China? Look, we, up until August of last year, we hadn't done any barley into China since about May 2020. And obviously, we all know about the the barley tariffs that China applied for for supposed dumping. But in uh, in May, and sorry, in August 2023, China removed those tariffs, and they almost immediately started um, exporting uh, barley into China. And they have been doing big volumes uh, right up until the latest data, which is December. So can you take us through month by month then, starting in August, when those tariffs, the 80% tariffs were lifted and Australia could resume sending barley into China. How did it progress from August up until the latest figures? In, in a very linear fashion, I'll, I'll use percentage terms because that's probably the easiest way, rather than rattling off hundreds of thousands of tonnes. So in August, uh, China had a market share of 16% of our exports of barley. In September, and bearing in mind August wasn't a full month, September that increased to 58%, October 72%, November 79%, and in December we hit 90% of our market share of export barley was headed to China. And, And to put that in perspective, even in the past, that's a big number. Even before we'd lost uh, access to China, only one month previously did we actually export 90% of our barley to China, and that was in January 2019. And is this because China's paying a better price than the others? That's the way the grain trade works. (laughs) Uh, Grain flows to the same as if a farmer is selling, uh, if he's selling his barley and one buyer's it, you know, 320 and another one's at 322. I can almost guarantee that person at 322 is going to get the volume. And that is just how the trade works. But I mean, what? how much more is China prepared to pay, even if it's a dollar a tonne more? Is that is that how the deal is done? It's always down to money. But if, if we look back historically, which I think is a good way to look at it, China effectively had to, whilst we had to find new markets for our barley, China had to find new markets for actually buying barley. And one of the clear ones and the clear winners from this whole sort of tariff was France. France did big volumes of barley into China. And what we saw was May 2020 Australian barley, like Western Australian barley, which is our predominant exporter, uh, moved from being a premium to French feed barley to being at a discount. And it almost immediately overnight and then it didn't return to a premium until August 2023. Because you've got to bear in mind that French barley is obviously coming from the other side of the world. It's a much longer freight distance. And so, and also we've got a lot more malt, uh, better quality malt varieties in Australia, hence why we tend to go into China. So, yeah, we basically we are taken back the market share that we had previously and probably a little bit more because China in the last two years has been importing massive quantities of all grains, uh, so wheat, barley and canola and corn, uh, just not from us necessarily. So back in 2020, 
when the tariffs were first imposed and Australia suddenly scrambling around looking for new market opportunities and, and did find those market opportunities in a range of markets. But um, And a lot of talk about how important they were and not putting all your eggs in one basket and the importance of diversification. Was that all talk? No, it wasn't. It was It was extremely important when we didn't have China to find new markets. But bearing in mind, the Australian government doesn't trade any grain. The only people that trade grains in Australia are grain traders and grain exporters. And ultimately, they're the ones that decide where it goes. And that will be based on commercial decisions. We did see that, yes, we, we did sell all of our barley. Our barley went overseas to a whole bunch of different nations. However, if we had China, we would have received a lot more money. You know, potentially sort of estimates around about that sort of $35 a ton. And so, yes, we, we had those markets and those markets are still there, but they're going to have to pay because China's a big buyer. And so we've turned our back on those other markets then by the sounds of it. If in December 90% of our barley is going into China. Well, I guess you, you could argue that we've turned our back or you could argue that those particular buyers are not paying enough. At the end of the day, it's it's a competitive marketplace and whoever pays the most amount of money will receive the grain. And that's just trade. Yeah. And that's set to continue then. I mean, we're already trading more barley into China than we had prior to those tariffs being imposed? I mean, can it increase beyond the 90% mark that we saw in December? No, but I think it's important that 90% in December as well because of the fact that traditionally December is our largest month for uh, barley exports. Traditionally, we would export the biggest volumes during December. So despite the fact that it's huge volumes, it's also huge market share going to China. So... Um, I, I expect that China will be our biggest uh, buyer uh, this year, and I've said that probably that they would be our biggest buyer once the tariffs removed. Ever since the tariff, yeah. So it's it's no real surprise, is it, what we're seeing yeah. here? Not at all. I think China was always going to come back in big licks, especially considering the fact that they have been, you know, buying such big volumes of every type of grain in the last two or three years. Andrew, good to talk to you. Thank you. No worries. Anytime. Andrew Whitelaw, he's a market analyst with episode3.net. 27 past 12. The Darken Sheep Fest was held on the weekend on Saturday, and I'm told it was about 43 degrees in the shade. Dr. Narelle Dibing was there talking to people about the National Feral Pig Action Plan, and she says now is a good time to put time and effort into controlling pigs which cause a lot of damage to the environment and farms. So in certain areas, you would have noticed that there's some flooding, things like that. Those kinds of areas are really good because pigs like water uh, because they can't sweat, so they need to congregate around a lot of water sources. So when there's a lot of water, there's a lot of resources for them to eat and to, um, to live in, so they love those conditions. And so there are a lot of areas around Australia which are suffering from floods, but pigs are loving it. However, when there's dry season, um, so what... A lot of WA is getting at the moment. There's a, um, 
a lot of the drought at the moment. This is very dry. This is probably the best time to get feral pigs because, again, they're congregating at water sources and they're dwindling. So if you go to those sources, you can actually target them and be more efficient and effective in these areas. Uh, for farmers and producers who might have a feral pig problem, is there a significant correlation between feral pigs on their property causing this damage and, I guess, uh, loss to livelihood or, or damage to their business? It definitely can be. And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't always um, measuring this. So we do try and advocate for um, really good monitoring and trying to measure the impacts that are there. Because once you know what the problem is and how much of a problem it is, you can actually measure how effective your control is. If it's not as effective and the number is still increasing and the impact is increasing, then you can actually adjust what you're doing to try and make it better. But if, if we're not um, measuring what, what the problem is, sometimes it is really hard then to gauge if it's working or not. Dr Narelle Dibing from the National Feral Pig Action Plan. She was speaking to Andrew Chounding at the Darken Sheep Fest held on Saturday. So Darken about 170 kilometres southeast of Perth. 29 past 12 here on The Country Hour. Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. A teenager who bashed Perth soccer player Danny Hodgson has indicated he will be pleading guilty to a robbery charge laid after he was released from juvenile detention. The teenager cannot be identified because he was 17 when he punched Mr Hodgson in the head outside Perth train station in 2021. He was sentenced to three years and eight months detention for the unprovoked attack. After he was released on a supervision order, he is alleged to have stolen a carton of alcohol with force from a liquor store in the midwest city of Geraldton. The Shire of 2J and at least one contractor have been charged with breaching WA's newly amended Aboriginal Heritage Act. The ABC understands the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage are accusing the Shire and the contractor of a breach in relation to works in several waterways. It's understood one of the jobs included altering a waterway to prevent erosion under a footpath. And briefly, the Kansas City Chiefs have have won back-to-back NFL Super Bowls after a 25 points to 22 overtime win over the San Francisco 49ers in Las Vegas. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. 29 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Before one, it's off to Mushay for the results of the cattle market. And as I mentioned earlier, an update on that blaze that destroyed parts of an agricultural supplies warehouse. We'll look at that in a little more detail, the fire itself, and the implications, of course, for fertiliser supplies here in Western Australia. We'll get to that shortly. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. Angeline, let's kick off with a look at conditions in northern and eastern parts of Western Australia. What can you see for this afternoon and the rest of the week? Good afternoon, Belinda. It's going to be a warm week across, a warm to hot week across the north of the state and north and east of the state this week. Uh, today we're seeing isolated shower and thunderstorm activity across the Kimberley, uh, the northern parts of the interior, and also expected to develop across the eastern parts of uh, the Pilbara. And that's likely to continue for the remainder of the week um, with um, more moist thunderstorms um, across the Kimberley. So we will see some rainfall. Whereas uh, it'll be drier across the interior and across the Pilbara. This pattern is not likely to change. We have got a broad area of low pressure that is going to be slow moving across the northern parts of the state, uh, so not much change. Across the gold fields and interior, it's a very hot day today. So we have got the West Coast Trough that moved across the uh, Southwest Land Division and it's now uh, extending across.
across the gold fields and it is going to move north um, uh, tomorrow so uh, temperatures are quite hot across the gold fields tomorrow but there will be a brief reprieve over the next couple of days with cooler temperatures as a ridge uh, develops along the south coast and then in the southwest land division and um, hot conditions also how's it going to pan out this week Yes, it's going to be hot, hot, hot. So uh, no no uh, news there, unfortunately, uh, Bell. Uh, this is, uh, there's a brief reprieve uh, from the heat across the uh, southern coastal districts of the southwest land division today. So temperatures are generally in the mid to high 20s with some decent cloud cover and very light showers, very isolated light showers on the south coast. Uh, elsewhere across the, uh, the southwest land division uh, through the central regions, uh, temperatures in the mid 30s, whereas across parts of the central weed belt and central west, uh, temperatures are still in the low 40s. Um, today and tomorrow, we'll see a ridge built across uh, the southwest initially and then uh, extend across the southern parts of the state into tomorrow. So that will bring uh, fresh and gusty south to southeast winds. So quite windy. Um, but uh, what those uh, onshore south to southeast winds will do is reduce the temperatures a little bit, especially across the southern parts of the southwest land division, including the great southern tomorrow. Um, so temperatures about uh, a little bit below normal, about two to four degrees below average. Um, the west coast does start to warm up uh, from tomorrow uh, as we see a quick return of the west coast trough. Uh, so the west coast trough develops very quickly uh, tomorrow, um, and then it persists in into uh, until 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 at least um, Thursday, where it remains slow moving on the west coast. So what that does is it turns the winds very quickly more east northeast, so drags the heat that's currently impacting the gas coin um, uh, further south. So we see uh, a rise in temperatures again. Um, so uh, Thursday by Thursday we see temperatures well above normal again. Um, it's been the the heat wave has contracted to the northern parts of the southwest land division today and it's mainly low intensity. However, from tomorrow as those temperatures start to pick up uh, due to the West Coast trough, that heat will slowly drift down again. So by Wednesday, we see a low intensity heat wave extend across much of the Southwest Land Division. That heat wave is likely to persist and in fact grow uh, across the Gascoigne and into the gold fields uh, later in the week. So we'll see um, uh, those very hot conditions persist across the weekend as well. Friday we may see a brief respite of the temp- uh, respite in the in those very hot temperatures, especially across the west coast coast as that as the trough moves inland. However, it will become slow moving again and so we'll see that heat continue building across the weekend. What's different this week with that west coast trough is um, it will drag in a fair amount of instability uh, into the southwest land division. So we s- the dry thunderstorms that I mentioned that will affect the northern parts, the northern and central parts of this of the state, the Pilbara and the Gascoigne, will extend into the southwest land division on Thursday. And those dry thunderstorms may stick around until the weekend. So very isolated thunderstorm activity, uh, most likely down the west coast um, and mostly affecting inland parts of the southwest land division. So what that basically means is the risk of dry lightning. Once we see dry lightning in the landscape, the um, the potential for, uh, for elevated fire dangers uh, does increase. 
case, but also um, more importantly, it's the risk of uh, bushfire risk uh, does become heightened uh, when we see start to see dry lightning in the landscape. So unfortunately, uh, we'll see more um, more uh, potential for some severe conditions, uh, especially with with relation to fire dangers uh, later in the week. The hot and windy conditions are going to keep fire dangers elevated this week, um, more so uh, with that uh, with that risk of dry lightning uh, in the second half of the week, Belinda. And thank you so much for going through those details. It's 23 to 1 here on the country. Uh, Richard Hudson is in the studio. And Richard, there's been a little bit of rain about over the weekend in the Kimberley. Yeah, in the Kimberley is mainly where the rain fell. So Bedford Downs recorded 5, Diggers Rest 53, Drysdale River Station 25, Emma Gorge 45, Flora Valley 20, Kachana 37, Columbaroo 14, Kununurras Airport 53, the checkpoint 37 and then at the Deep Herd Station 14, Lake Argyle Resort 67, Mount Barnett 7, Nicholson 27, Parry Creek Farm 28, Siddons Creek 6, Theta 25, Troughton Island 12, Warman 19 and Wyndham recorded 29. In the Pilbara, Yarralula had 13 mils, but apart from those figures, there was no rain anywhere else in the entire state, including the whole of the Southwest Land Division. Have you got any fire warnings for us, Richard? Uh, you might have to do that one. Apologies. <laughs> How rude. Uh, let me uh, tell you, because of extreme fire danger today, Monday the 12th of February, there is a total fire ban that's been issued for the following areas. In the Perth metropolitan region, Chittering all day, Swan all day. Then in the southwest region, Capel and Dardanup. The lower southwest region, Augusta Margaret River, Bustleton, Donnybrook bailing up. Now, the fire ban is in place all day and you must not light, maintain or use a fire in the open air or carry out any activity that could start a fire, including lighting fires for cooking or camping or hot work such as grinding or welding. Remember, it is your responsibility to check with your local shire if there's also a harvest and vehicle movement ban imposed. If so, that means you can't use off-road vehicles even for agriculture or industry. There's more about what you can and what you can't do during a total fire ban and also a map of the areas on the Emergency WA website. That's emergency.wa.gov.au. Just repeating, there is a total fire ban today for parts of the southwest and lower southwest regions, 21 to 1. Now, there are concerns that a blaze that destroyed parts of an agricultural supplies warehouse may stretch Western Australia's farmers' stores of fertilisers and chemicals ahead of the seeding season. Richard, what's the story? Yeah, so on Friday, plumes of black smoke were seen billowing from the Kunana warehouse, and it's run by Nutrien Ag Solutions. All sorts of rumours were flying around on social media over the weekend. We did try to chat to someone from Nutrien because we had heard that it was a conveyor belt that actually caught fire. But uh, so far, all we've got is a statement. And what it does is it confirms that there was some port infrastructure at the Quinana Bulk Jetty, including the Nutrien Bulk Fertiliser site, were impacted by that fire. And the statement says it was only holding granular fertiliser, so bulk nitrogen fertiliser storage and their chemical manufacturing facilities were not impacted by the fire. 
and they did manage to safely evacuate 11 people from the site, which is good news. So any idea how much of the fertiliser might have been damaged? At this stage, no. So the statement doesn't go into that detail. Nutrient's manager in the West is Andrew Duperuzel, and he's saying Nutrient is assessing the damage to the site and it's working closely with Fremantle Ports to confirm new access routes and adjusted shipping schedules and also alternative storage solutions to ensure they can you know, minimise the impact to the supply chain. There's two issues here, I suppose, and I would imagine they're still assessing these. Number one is when the firefighters came in, just how much water with all sorts of chemicals was sprayed onto that fire and how much of that ended up on the fertiliser. So how much damage, it's still unsure, and how much damage to the storage facility itself. So the reason that's important is obviously because future storage of fertiliser could be affected. Richard, have you been able to find out exactly what sort of fertiliser was in that storage facility? Nutrient haven't confirmed it, but apart from simply saying it was granular only, but... Sources within the fertiliser industry here in Western Australia, and good sources, have told me it's most likely to be phosphate fertiliser in that shed, but that's still an educated guess. So if it all is damaged, what impact will that have on phosphate supplies for farmers? Yeah, I suppose that's the question farmers do want an answer to. WA Farmers President John Hassel is certainly a bit bit worried, basically on how much fertiliser may have actually been damaged in that fire. It's fairly significant, but in terms of fertiliser, there's about four four or five different companies, including CBH, um, CSBP, Summit, Whitford Fertiliser. So there's there's four alternatives for fertiliser. Not so sure about the chemical side of things, but uh, yeah, it'll it'll stretch everybody's resources pretty thin trying to make sure everybody's covered for fertiliser for the year, I think. I'm sure John Hassel and other farmers are worried whether those with nutrient contracts will still get the fertiliser that they've ordered and maybe paid for. And the other questions are, will there be a short-term shortage here in Western Australia? And what impact will that have on the prices? Because that'll affect even people who are not buying from nutrient. And I suppose this is especially relevant at the moment because grain farmers are gearing up for seeding. But as John mentioned there, Nutrient is only one of uh, four players, main players in the market here in WA. And I'm told that even if all of the fertiliser in that Nutrient Ag Solution shed was destroyed, it'll still only represent about a 5% loss on the availability of fertiliser this year. And I'm also told that other fertiliser companies may actually have enough reserves to make up for some of that fertiliser loss and maybe even all of it, mainly because last year wasn't a cracker. And in other words, they didn't sell as much fertiliser as what they would have done if it was a record season. The crucial bit of information, I suppose, is, the again, the word from industry is, please, there is no need for panic buying. Richard, thanks for the update. It's 17 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And Richard Hudson just going over what we know so far about that blaze that destroyed parts of Nutrien's agricultural supplies warehouse in Quinana on Friday afternoon. Still to come, off to Muche shortly and you'll get a wrap on the yarding and the prices 
at the Mushay cattle market today. First, though, the most comprehensive survey into farm crime in Australia has started to release some of the preliminary results, and it suggests that farm thefts are up. But the survey conducted by the University of New England's Centre for Rural Criminology needs more responses. And that's where you come in, because they particularly want to hear from farmers in Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Project lead Dr Kyle Mulrooney says it's important to get a national understanding of rural crime. The Centre for Rural Criminology captured the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey in 2021. Barring that, there's a little bit of data out of Victoria and really nothing for the rest of the country. Uh, We work fairly closely with the rural crime prevention team here in New South Wales. Through them and through our own research, we know that farm crime and rural crime in Australia is is a national problem. It's not isolated to New South Wales and Victoria, not by a long shot. And so we wanted to try to understand this issue on a national level and really, really collect that important data that will help us address the issue in other states where we really have a, a dark figure and, and a, no clear understanding of the problem in these areas. But we know anecdotally and we know from victim experiences uh, covered in the media and addressed by the police that, it, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a big issue for farmers uh, all around Australia. And how much longer of the study is left to go and uh, have you been getting enough responses so far? Yeah, so the response rate has been absolutely fantastic. I think naturally so. The uptake has been in uh, those larger states uh, like New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, where we have uh, a bit of information. So we're leaving the survey open a little bit longer in the hopes that we can collect more data out of other states, uh, especially South Australia, Tasmania, Western Australia, Northern Territories, uh, where we just don't have a historical picture. And so we want to make sure that we're capturing that with sufficient detail, uh, specifically sufficient statistical detail. Our goal here is to understand farm crime at a national level, but also to understand it at an individual level, and that is at the individual level uh, of the state. So we want to understand what does farm crime look like in South Australia. It's important that we we understand these unique pictures so that we address it appropriately, so that we can empower policymakers, police and other actors that, that engage with these issues, including the farmers themselves, with the information they need on the ground to actually address these issues. As the survey is ongoing, you might not know yet, but would you suspect there are any major differences when it comes to farm crime between the states? Um, I think you'll find differences based upon a variety of variables. So what is farmed? What are the predominant uh, uh, farming uh, industries, of course, will we'll highlight various aspects and, and, and various offences that are unique to certain, certain areas. I mean, you find that even within states. Uh, you know, where there's high levels of different types of farming. There'll be local characteristics that would very much shape that, proximity to major cities, different experiences across such a large country in terms of weather-related events like drought and these types of things that will definitely be attuned to when we're interpreting the data. But I have no doubt that what you'll find is that farm crime is a problem across each and every state and, and amongst farmers there, that they're facing these issues, that they have been facing them for a long time. And so I think that will be an an unfortunate but universal finding. And are there any preliminary results you can share? Out of the ones that we can sort of definitively, in terms of statistical representation, talk about, unfortunately, it looks like business as usual in those states. For instance, the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey in 2021 
if we look at the New South Wales data for this national survey, of which we have a lot, we actually see elevations in victimization. So we see a greater number of farmers actually reporting victimization. So New South Wales Farm Crime Survey, around 81% reported experiencing victimization in their lifetime. Um, that is, they were a victim of crime on their farm. And in this survey, we're looking at uh, the higher 80s now. We see repeat victimizations quite high. So farmers experiencing crimes on numerous occasions across the lifetime. We've also looked at elevations of specific types of crimes in the last two years, particularly diesel theft and these types of issues, which again relate to changes in the economy, you know, wars the world over caused diesel prices to increase here. And you see a subsequent uh, spike in these types of thefts. So right now it's all preliminary as we haven't closed the survey. So we'll have data, of course, still pouring in from uh, New South Wales and elsewhere. But it's looking like uh, what we hypothesized that it would be an issue and you would see growth in, in, in other areas. And I mean, that aligns with a lot of the, the anecdotal data that we've been getting. A lot of the conversations with the police we've had or the media stories where you're seeing particularly if we home in on stock theft, quite high-level, sophisticated thefts of tens, hundreds, and sometimes thousands of livestock uh, missing, and that sort of bearing out in the data, these types of experiences around the quintessential Euro, uh, rural crime that is stock theft, but also, like I said, diesel theft, break and enter into properties, trespass, illegal hunting, all these issues, uh, once again, appear uh, very apparent and considerable for farmers across, uh, across the country. Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of New England, Dr Kyle Mulrooney with Elsie Adamo. In Western Australia's Goldfields region, a lot of companies are putting effort into renewable energy. In 2020, the Agnew Gold Mine near Leinster was the first mine in Australia to be powered by wind. It installed five large wind turbines alongside solar and battery storage, and that started a trend. The Goldfields now has six wind farms either under construction, due to begin construction in the next 12 months, or at a feasibility stage. Professor Peter Ashworth runs Curtin University's Institute for Energy Transition. She thinks the mining sector will now get into renewables in a big way. The cost of generation is coming down, the accessibility and those sorts of things. So while they're all popping up now, I'd say the planning's been there for some time. And while wind farms will be one part of it, within one of those mines they'll also have solar battery and also some backup gas so that then you know when the sun's really hot during the summer months or that part of the day they can access that and store it but similarly when the wind goes low then they can turn to their batteries and the backup if they need to make sure they've got the 24-7 operation so for me I think it's really exciting and it I suppose shows you know that corporations see that this is important for their long-term sustainability and I mean I'm told that investors are big funds that invest in mining companies and have those deep pockets, they're sort of demanding that focus on um, ESG these days, like your environmental, social governance, uh, just to make sure people really um, are looking down that path. Absolutely. I think it's a core part of doing business these days. But at the same time, I think why you're seeing this shift is that it actually starts to make good business sense because it does stack up and, and, you know, thinking about what is going to be the long-term price increases around diesel and gas, if you can sort of section that off by your standalone having a large input of renewable energy balanced by some thermal or storage, it just works in all. So it actually is a positive 
to be positive for shareholders, but also just for operations, I suppose, and shoring that up. I mentioned to you that there's actually blades that are currently being transported for a wind farm from Geraldton Port, and they're going about 900 kilometres inland to the Jundee gold mine. Do you think that these projects being so remote are in the, the best location to have these off-grid power um, supplies? Look, I, I think it's a really great outcome. We can actually have distributed energy, sort of these you know, standard microgrids, wherever it is, for mining or for other communities. I think it's a really good outcome. You know, we often talk about Australia sort of very land space rich, but of course, you know, there's always contention and actually we've seen a bit of that in the news this week. So finding the spaces where it actually works um, easily, I think, is a, is a great sort of signal to, to sort of start progressing because then also you've got some really good demonstrations and examples so that that can give confidence to other people as they move forward. What does it look like? How does it operate? And all of those sorts of things. Are there any long-term solutions? Uh, we were talking about wind farms. These massive blades, I think 82 metres long, some of these that are going out to the Jundee mine. Um, is there any long-term solutions What they, once they've reached the end of their life, what we can do? I understand they just get put in landfill at the moment. There's a lot of work going into that sort of reuse, recycling, especially of the carbon fibres and those sorts of things. In actual fact, the, there is a trailblazer which is sort of looking at new ideas led out of Deakin University. So there's a lot of effort going in also within the wind companies themselves about repurposing and how you can upgrade. So I think there's real opportunities. I think that's the exciting thing of the energy transition right now with green tech. We've got some great advances, but there's a whole lot of you know new horizon things that will come in and help support. So I'm really confident that, um, you know, it... No, there's no way I don't think society will accept that it all just goes to landfill, if you know what I mean. It's not really a solution. And so as we move forward, I think there's a lot of work going into sort of those sorts of ideas of how you can reuse and recycle in different ways. Professor Peter Ashworth, Director of Curtin University's Institute for Energy Transition with Jared Lucas. You can read more on the story on the ABC News website. And some of the proposed renewable projects in the goldfields include a 30 megawatt wind farm at the Kathleen Valley Lithium Project near Leinster and the John D. Bellevue, Tropicana, West Musgrave and Mount Keith mines are also embracing wind power. Six to one. Australian miners need to take a closer look at their energy footprint. That's the opinion of Deloitte Australia's mining and metals leader, Nikki Ivory. She says some companies might have to start making some big changes for us to have any chance of getting close to meeting net zero targets. Obviously, as we know, the energy transition is is the theme of our times. We, the world, the whole planet has to move towards a net zero, hopefully by 2050. And so what does that mean? We, we need to implement different types of energy systems. We need to move away from fossil fuels based to renewable energy systems. And the big opportunity, of course, for mining companies is twofold here. One is it's a very energy um, minerals intense transition. It, it broadly speaking requires about six times as much of the critical minerals that we currently use in this new sort of phase of energy. And so of course, mining companies are well positioned to provide that. But on the flip side, mining companies have a very big 
emissions footprint. And so how do you do this in a way that doesn't make the problem worse, but actually makes, you know, adds adds to the solution? And so that means mining companies need to take a really good look at their own emissions footprint and how they bring that down, how they embrace renewable energy, for example, and, and just do things differently. Is there a need to act now? And, and can resource companies, can they act now? Or are we sort of not quite there yet? It's a really t- interesting and tough question. So, yes, they can do, they can act now. I think the imperative is, you know, the massive scrutiny from all stakeholders, investors, regulators, um, society, uh, you know, l- local uh, rights holders. You know, everyone is looking at the industry saying you have to clean up your act. So I think there's an imperative. It's coming from many sides. You can't get left behind, but you also have to be careful as a miner that you don't go too too hard too soon because the technology is evolving so quickly. So how do you manage that? How do you do enough that you're on the road, you've got a strategy, but you're flexible enough to flex as new technologies emerge and therefore bring down potentially the cost of things. So if you commit to a massive capital investment now and then in two years' time that's effectively redundant, that's a big strategic risk. So yes, there's an imperative to act now, but you have to balance it. So it's this concept of getting on the pathway but retaining flexibility. Because I I suppose, as you say, there is that potential for looking quite hypocritical as an an industry because you're feeding that green revolution, you're making money off it while you're still producing those emissions and using the energy yourself. Yeah, and so that's why I said the imperative is is a couple of different angles. Um, You you can't keep producing the way we have always produced. So the pressure is mounting from all sides and that won't cut the mustard for much longer. Deloitte, Australia's mining and metals leader, Nikki Ivory with Tara DeLangraft. Two minutes to one to the markets and about 1,200 head of cattle sold at the Mouchet sale yards this morning. Terry Birkin, hello, can you run through the details? Hi Belinda. Numbers were similar to last week with only 135 less and once again cows and heifers dominated the sale whilst air car supplies increased and young bulls were down in volume with around 100 penned in total. Condition was lacking in a high percentage of weaner type calves of all sexes compared to last week resulting in cheaper rates. Again, there was selective inquiry from the eastern states, but this didn't help with most categories losing ground on the last two weeks' gains. Bill of steers from 200 to 280 kg were selling from 150 to 260 cents, slipping away by 20 cents a kilo, partly due to lack of condition, while over 280 kilos sold to a top of 264 cents a kilo. Bill of heifers in the same weight categories ranged from 100 cents to 212 cents, and heavier heifers realised 218 cents a kilo, easing 10 cents. Young steers also lose 20 cents, returning 120 to 240 for feeder weights and up to 246 cents for slaughter weights. Yearling heifers at feeder weights range from 80 cents to 218 cents, while processing condition heifers sold from 120 to 190 cents a kilo. Grown steers sold from 100 cents to 226 cents, remaining firm, while grown heifers were back a bit, making 148 cents to 180 cents a kilo. Feeder condition cows remain buoyant, returning 38 to up to 156 cents, while medium heavy cows eased 5 to 10 cents, selling from 120 to 180 cents a kilo. Young bull values also dropped off, making 50 cents to 214 cents, and mature heavy bulls lost a bit of momentum, selling from 100 cents to 180 cents a kilo. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. 
Terry, thank you so much. At Mouchet today, 1,274 head of cattle. That was the final tally for the yarding, and that included 88 calves. Uh, you'll be back at Mouchet this time tomorrow, and Terry will go through the sheep market for you. Good to catch up today on the ABC, right across WA. Time for the news, 1 o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.